It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Las Vegas has a colorful past, one that includes the mob. While organized crime is part of the history of Las Vegas, one man in particular is part of the history of the Flamingo Hotel and a part of the history of the American underworld. His name is Bugsy Siegel. My guest is Michael Schneerson, author of Bugsy Siegel, The Dark Side of the American Dream, published by Yale University Press and available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Michael Schneerson, go to mshnay.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at mbshnay. And Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks. Very nice to be here, Ira. Thanks. Michael, tell us about the Jewish series, because this book is part of that, and then specifically why you decided to write about Bugsy Siegel. Sure. Well, the, the series is, is actually published by Yale University Press, and it's called Jewish Lives. Fewer than 50 short biographers, but it is no fewer than 50 short biographies of accomplished Jews in history. It was actually the the uh, brainchild of, of uh, Leon Black, the financier who underwrites. And of course, you're thinking distinguished Jewish figures, that doesn't seem to include Bugsy. And you're right, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> I was going to bring that up, yes. <laughs> it, it, was, it was Leon's idea to do... Um, in all this group of distinguished people, why not a, a Jewish gangster? They are as much a part of the sort of American Jewish story as as the more distinguished ones. So that's how the series came to be and how that book came to be looking for a writer. And I just happened to be sitting at dinner with a lovely woman who turned out to be the editor of that series. And I convinced her that I was the perfect man to do this because I had written Harry Belafonte's autobiography with him. And there's quite a chunk uh, of that book set in Vegas. So I managed to, to talk her into it. And I was off and running on what was just an extremely fun, colorful uh, adventure. So that's how it all came about. I know you've written many books, including the one that you mentioned on Harry Belafonte. And so much of Vegas is part of the American culture. And Bugsy Siegel clearly is part of American culture, American Jewish culture, and Las Vegas culture. So it's all combined in that sense. But Bugsy didn't become, and his, his official name is Benjamin, but everybody called him Bugsy Siegel, so we're going to leave it as Bugsy Siegel. He didn't become an organized crime force in a vacuum. So can you tell us about his environment, his milieu, his sure. associates? Well, he was a, a first-generation uh, American, born uh, on the Lower East Side. Unlike Meyer Lansky, his lifelong pal, who was actually born in Russia and came over as a boy. But they were both on the Lower East Side, which teemed with people, uh, unbelievable. It, it was one of the most crowded enclaves in the United States, if, if not the world. I mean, it, it, you felt like you were in India when, when you were in the Lower East Side, full of push carts and people hawking this and that. Kids didn't need to stay in school very long if they didn't want to, because their parents were probably keeping track of four other kids. And that was indeed the case with, with Ben. I, I always try to call him Ben out of sort of a deference, because it was, after all, his name. But I'll explain the, the, the nickname, if you like. 
at any rate, by the age of nine or 10, Ben was, you know, prowling the streets uh, of his neighborhood looking to rob or get into trouble or, or tag along with a gang. There was a lot of opportunity for crime down there. And it, it was while he was, it was as a teenager that he met Meyer Lansky. And they were a marvelous part and counterpart to each other. Ben was very hot headed, which is one reason, by the way, he got his nickname. Meyer, very cool, calm, rather a, a, a hefty size, five ten, you know, strong fellow that you you'd like to have in a in a, in a fight. Uh, Meyer, very diminutive, not personally violent at all. He would give orders, but he wasn't violent himself. So they they was sort of the yin and yang of each other's universe down there in the Lower East Side. And yet for all that, nothing might have happened to either of them that we would be thinking about today without prohibition. And it was in 1920, as you know, that prohibition began. And overnight, these kids who were still just like 16 years old were, uh, you know, on rum running trips, driving the trucks in the middle of the night to get from uh, Long Island into the city or wherever it was. And um, incredibly, Ben, by, uh, let's pick a number, 1923, was living uh, um, in the Waldorf Astoria <laughs> in a suite. And Meyer was across town in the Majestic in his own grand but lower key uh, apartment. And these guys were off and running. And one of the out, uh, outgrowths of their talent was that they uh, became assistants to Arnold the Brain Rothstein, who, who, uh, about whom there are legions, uh, legends. But um, Ben, unfortunately, was, was shot rather early in this Prohibition era. And so Meyer and, and uh, Ben were on their own. Not to belabor this too much, they made a lot of money. They killed a lot of people. They started something called the bus, the the Ben and and Meyer mob. Pretty much, you could hire them to kill anybody you wanted dead, and that went pretty well for them until, of course, the end of prohibition, and um, and and the recognition that they needed a new game, and so Meyer went to Florida and essentially made that his universe and set up racetracks and bars and, you know, restaurants and all sorts of stuff. Ben, who always loved the, the glamour of, of Hollywood, went to L.A. And in, a, in effect, I, I, in my writing of the book, I realized that there are really three acts in, in Ben's life. And, and the first one is the Lower East Side and his rise to, to power and money in New York. The second one is L.A. with all sorts of wonderful, colorful things that happen there. And, and Act 3 is Las Vegas because that's uh, when Ben heads up there to um, ultimately open his own hotel casino, the Flamingo. Before we focus on Las Vegas, from your research and your writing of the book, how complicated of a man was he? Or was he a simple guy? I think he was complicated. Um, I think there's no doubt he was very smart. I think that he was, if not a psychopathic killer, certainly someone who was extremely cold-blooded. And sad to say, because I kind of like Ben <laughs> after this whole experience of living with him for a couple of years, but, you know, I'd have to say 
he had a reputation for not just killing people, but being personally involved in the hit and taking a sort of morbid pleasure in the in the pain his victims felt before they died. I wonder why that is, especially because he seemed to move in certain circles. He had obviously a girlfriend that we know about, the the most important one. We'll get to her. Yeah, yeah. we'll get to her. So it seemed he had those elements of humanity, but at the same time, he was as you well, maybe because he was psychopathic. Well, you you said is he complicated? I think he is complicated. I, I think he was very loyal to his family. He was very, for instance, uh, he had a younger brother, and he paid for his kid brother's college and medical school. Maurice, who went on to actually become a well-known surgeon in L.A., so he was loyal in that sense and generous. He was also very loyal to all of his fellow gangsters, and and loyalty, as we all know, is the um, lingua franca of, uh, of of the mob. So there was all that about him. There was also humor. He was funny. He was um, beautifully dressed. You know, even by the early years of the twenties, this was a guy who was learning his lessons in in wardrobe from from uh, Arnold Rothstein before Rothstein died. Was and, Arnold was Arnold his mentor in a sense? Yes, Arnold was very much his mentor, both mentor to to Ben and to Meyer. In fact, Rothstein and Meyer and Ben met at a at, at an, some social occasion in Brooklyn. And Rothstein was so uh, enamored of, so impressed by Meyer's calm sort of maturity that he invited the both of them to to start driving trucks for him, you know, filled with booze. So loyalty was absolutely uh, pivotal to understanding Ben, to understanding the anger that he took with people who were disloyal, and uh, perhaps the, you know, almost uh, psychopathic pleasure that he took in killing those he felt were no longer loyal to him. There's a little irony. I was just going to say there's a little irony at the end of his story, because things get so desperate financially as he's building the Flamingo, that he almost certainly starts skimming money from the funds, the millions of dollars that his fellow gamblers have, have advanced to him to build this thing. And that's really what gets him killed. I like the way uh, you phrased that, his fellow gamblers. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I would say, no, his, his fellow gangsters. Excuse yeah, me. yeah. Um, and but, that's, and that's they could really, have been gamblers, too. But Yeah, right. Um, so anyway, that, that's a little sense of his complexity. When he focused on Las Vegas, he was a visionary in that sense. So he had that part of his makeup that he was able to look at desert and yeah. realize a dream. Something I found out only well, relatively recently, about 20 years ago, I found out that he wasn't he wasn't in on the very beginning of the Flamingo. That was Wilkerson, who was the founder right. of the Hollywood Reporter, which a lot of people right, didn't right. know. But came yes, to well, light. let me let me speak to that because it is really a fascinating and essential piece of the puzzle here. You know, there's a legend that Ben uh, drove south uh, from Las Vegas one day and saw in 1945 and saw uh, a sign of uh, 33 acres for sale. And he looked into it and then he brought Meyer Lansky back and he said, look, Meyer, this is, we're going to buy this. It's going to be a great hotel casino. And Meyer said, what are you talking about? That's version one. Version two is that Meyer was the one in the driver's seat who showed Ben the land that he himself had found and, and earmarked for a, a hotel casino. But 
But Billy Wilkerson, whom you just invoked, is probably the guy who did uh, appreciate the land first. And um, he, he certainly made efforts to, to buy a partial uh, chunk of it from the, the uh, woman who had uh, in a former life been a brothel keeper in Hawaii. But that's someone else's story to tell. At any rate, uh, Wilkerson bought this property not only because he felt it could be a great addition to his collection of trophy restaurants in LA, like um, Ciro's and Trocadero and uh, Vendome. Uh, he had started all those uh, as well as starting the Hollywood Reporter. He was a very clever at, at, at we, we would say, marketing glamour. And he saw this tumbleweed-blown land as representing his most glamorous prospect yet the only problem was he was a complete alcoholic um <laughs> in fact his main reason for buying this was so he would have a place where he could play uh, you know his games of chance and at the end of the night be given the money back um you know uh but the problem was that even in the first months as he started building what he called then the hotel wilkerson he would go to the other established uh, casinos and lose more money there. He lost so much money, like a million dollars in 1945, that he finally threw up his hands and said, I can't do this anymore. Will you two guys help me? And these two guys who were buddies of his happened to be gangsters loyal to Meyer, Lansky, and Lucky Luciano. And of course, they were all too happy to, um, to take over from him. And for a little while, it was them and Billy, until once again, Billy went on a bender and realized he needed a partner. And one day, he came to the construction site to see this very slickly dressed guy standing there. But it was, as he well knew, Ben, Ben Siegel. And um, uh, he must have had conflicted feelings about this because Ben certainly had the money with with the backing of his gangsters to to finish the flamingo but he was he was well known as bugsy as as a as a volatile guy well for the first few weeks they worked great together because ben just poured on his his admiration for billy whose restaurants of course he had frequented in la in, in fact uh, every night uh, during a certain period when when ben was in jail Ciro's would 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 send him dinner. In, in, in his, <laughs> you know, a, a relationship, a friendship. But Ben, being the volatile guy he is or was, soon uh, lost all admiration for Billy and wanted to do the whole thing himself. And so he formed a corporation called the Nevada Projects Corporation. Basically, just to to build and own the Flamingo Hotel, and everybody got shares. All the insiders and Billy Wilkerson got some, Ben got some, Meyer got some, and um, the only trouble was that by then, in in nineteen forty six, the summer of forty six or so, the government had taken a, a a strong interest in the Flamingo and its founders, um, and they did not like what they saw. This was, of course, right after World War II, and the uh, federal government uh, had a strong campaign on to encourage returning veterans 
to buy their homes. And and so encouraging- The GI Bill. Yeah. Well, the GI Bill was part of it, but also just to do anything possible to get these veterans into decent homes that they certainly deserved after their wartime duty. Well, the Flamingo was the antithesis of that. And yet it had been started just before that government policy went into action. And of course, just before the end of the war. So um, Ben was thrown into a situation that for the first time he really couldn't control. He couldn't shoot, you know, the members of the government agency that was promulgating this policy. Uh, All he could do was try to um, bribe the local senator, McCarran, I think was his name of Nevada, who who was was probably pretty probable, to tell the truth. But then he could also help by getting materials when they were very difficult to get. But Ben had to prove to the government that what he was building was a one-building compound. It wasn't a series of different commercial enterprises like a hotel and a casino. And the whole story of how he did that is kind of fascinating in itself. Uh, We don't have time for it, but I'll just tell you that that rather impressively, he beat the government back on its own terms and proved that his casino hotel would in fact be legal. And um, and with that, the construction resumed and they, you know, worked headlong toward December of, of 1946 when the hotel was scheduled to open. And, you know, Let's go back to something you said before, Ira. I mean, Ben does get a lot of credit, not for having built the first hotel casino, because there were a couple that had just gone up in the early 40s, nor would he build the most glamorous casino that, you know, that stood then and stands today. I mean, what he did do was take the whole casino culture from what, you know, we would call, um, sawdust and uh, wagon wheels on the wall, you know, a little local joints to what they called a carpet joint, you know, which is the place fancy enough to have wall-to-wall carpeting and proper air conditioning for the first time. And uh, and also where families could come, you could, you could, you know, in Ben's vision, you 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 would gamble all night and then you could wake up and and play the the horses with the race wire the next day. So you know, it was a big vision that he had. And the only problem was that he had now spent so much money that, you know, no rational person could 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 see how he would finish this damn thing. Not only that, but all sorts of mistakes were being made. I mean, one example is that he, he uh, walked into the newly constructed and designed master bedroom suite where he and Virginia Hill, his inamorata, would would live ostensibly, only to walk into a ceiling beam um, <laughs> because the, the the workers who had who had put in the beam were rather small, and Ben was five ten, and um, so you know things like that happened. There was a huge industrial kitchen that was going to be put into the flamingo, but it didn't fit where it was supposed to go. You know stuff like this. So money was always being spent just to undo whopping mistakes. Plus, of course, there was just a huge staff. The other thing that was getting in Ben's way, because by the summer of 1946, 
not only was he struggling to pay for the skyrocketing costs of this this casino hotel, but he was fending off the FBI now. And, and J. Edgar Hoover directly was was guiding the agents on this particular case, trying to pin something, anything on on Ben. And once again, I think we have to give Ben some credit and admiration for the fact that that he beat that aspect of the U.S. government, too. There's a wonderful memo uh, written from one of uh, J. Edgar Hoover's lieutenants uh, on this case after about three months, throwing his hands up and saying, you know, Mr. Hoover, I'm so sorry, but we haven't found one shred of evidence that we can act on. Well, so so Ben beat back two government agencies, and yet his greatest demon was himself because he was overspending wildly. And uh, his, his uh, builders, Del Webb, famous fellow who went on to own the Yankees, I think, you know, had had outstanding bills for four hundred thousand dollars. I mean, there's a lot of money in 1946. So uh, Ben had uh, no choice but to uh, fly back to New York, hat in hand, and try to convince his fellow gangsters to give him much more money than they'd already given him. And they were not happy about this because they liked seeing instant returns on their money, and there was no returns yet at all. He did, uh, legend has it, managed to raise a couple more million dollars, or at least enough to pay off Del Webb and a few others, go back to uh, Las Vegas and finish the job. But by December, when he was supposed to actually open the Flamingo, his, his fellow gangsters had lost virtually all faith in him. And there's a, uh, a wonderful uh, legend that at that very time that Ben was desperately trying to you know, finish the bedrooms and put a bidet in every one and do all these sort of crazy extravagant things, many of which were the inspiration of Virginia Hill, that while all that was going on, uh, his, his uh, uh, former fellow gangsters were meeting in Havana to decide what to do about Ben, because Ben, despite all his years of loyalty and, and uh, triumph as a gangster, was now, as far as they could tell, skimming. And so was Virginia Hill. And the money was, so they believed, going to some Swiss bank account. And this is a, a rule you just don't break in that world. And so basically, from the end of that meeting, he was a dead man walking. And um, even Meyer Lansky, his lifelong friend, could not persuade the others at the table that Ben should be allowed to, um, you know, make good on his debts, etc. They wanted the money, but they now wanted him too. Well, the casino did open in the end of December 1947, and it was a disaster. It was a three-night opening, all sorts of advertising in, in L.A., making it seem, you know, incredibly glamorous. But there was a huge storm. Uh, the night, uh, the first of the three nights that that uh, the casino had its opening, and none of the stars who were supposed to come came. And he, you know, he walked around with Virginia on his arm, just feeling, you know, terrible, feeling that he had failed. And by the third night of the three night stand, the storm in LA was over. Whatever he had done to twist arms had worked, and the place was full. The only trouble with it being full is that the audience included pretty much every 
top drawer ga- uh, gambler, professional gambler um, in America. And and uh, I don't no one to this day knows why Ben let that happen or or why he, you know, seemed like such a loser in this regard. But the fact is, those gamblers made tons of money uh, those first few nights and so much that uh, Ben was really um, forced by the end of January to close and and restock and, and finish the bathrooms and the bedrooms and all this. That was that was about March. February or so of March of 1947. And the, 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 the thing about that is it was actually the right decision. By March 1st, he was able to reopen. He fixed the rest of the hotel and the, uh, and, and the casino. People had begun coming. He was hiring top entertainment. And the proof of this was that by May, the Flamingo was in the black. And that, I guess, is why Ben felt as complacent as he did, or at least relieved and optimistic on the night of June 20th, when in fact he was shot. Well, that's a great way to end it, but I don't want to say it's a great way when someone gets killed. But I like the way you left it because there's so much more to the story in your book. And it's a great overview, which you've given us about the life and times of, of Bugsy Siegel. And so I appreciate it. My guest has been Michael Schneerson, author of Bugsy Siegel, the Dark Side of the American Dream, part of the Jewish Live series published by Yale University Press, available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Michael Schneerson, go to mshnay.com. I won't try to pronounce it, so I'm just going to go mshnay.com. And you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at mbshnay. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Ira. It's a pleasure. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Anything you want us to be.